This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, A Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take firsthand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. Police, A Field Guide is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, non-compliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, order, badge, throwdown weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists, and anyone with an open mind, on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence, and of police. Police, a field guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is part two of my interview on Hannah Arendt's notion of the right to have rights. This episode covers a lot, including why we must fight not only to expand the democratic political community, so that it includes people who are currently excluded, like immigrants and ex-offenders, but also to deepen that political community's power at a time when the nativist right is exploiting the many crises unleashed by neoliberalism and empire to erect walls and punish scapegoats. The upshot is that zombie liberalism can't be the answer because it is precisely the liberal order that is a key source of the problem. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend that you do so first. My guests today are Stephanie DeGoyer and Astra Taylor, who just wrote a book about this for Verso, called The Right to Have Rights. There are also chapters by Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne. Wait, on an unrelated note, I have someone calling in on the other line. Baskar Sankara, Jacobin editor, is that you? Hi, how are you? It's, uh, it's Baskar oh, Sankara well- from Jacobin. So I hear that you're working on a documentary about socialism. Oh, why, Dan, this was an impromptu call. I did not expect this call or in any way arrange it. Um, that, uh, that is indeed correct. I am producing a uh, documentary about socialism. To my knowledge, it'll be the first full-length feature documentary uh, about socialism in the United States. And I'm working with a a really talented team of people who actually know something about documentaries and films, which I do not. And that would be uh, include Yael Bridge, who is a dear friend of mine. Yes, yes. And uh, you're not responsible for the initial connection, but you could take take credit for that. Um, but basically, our idea was that Jacobin reaches a pretty impressive amount of people for what it is. 
which is essentially a Marxist journal masquerading as a popular magazine. Um, but there was <laughs> tens of thousands, um, hopefully millions of people who are interested in socialist ideas, but who don't have any um, kind of access to these ideas. Um, and I think a film would really reach a lot more people than we could possibly imagine to do a Jacobin. It's sort of like Jacobin, go on Netflix. Basically, that's the plan. I mean, and hopefully the, the film is uh, being done with production values and people can check out the Kickstarter. Um, we're going to be promoting it heavily on the Jacobin Facebook and Twitter page. How can and, they find you know, that Kickstarter? Um, so the Kickstarter is going to be um, promoted heavily on the Jacobin uh, Facebook page, the Twitter page. So on my Twitter page, it's going to be, um, it's also available at uh, socialismthemovie.com. Um, so, you know, that'll, Great. that'll direct you, but the, the trailer is really, really brilliant. It looks like, you know, a million dollar documentary and that's what we're hoping to do. And we're trying to raise a hundred thousand dollars in Kickstarter so far. We're right around the 50% mark, which isn't wow. that bad for the first week. No. But, um, yeah, we only had one large contribution. So it's been all people giving 35, you know, $50, whatever they could afford. And, um, you know, it's a not-for-profit, so everything you donate minus the rewards we'll send you. You know, you could tax deduct if you're if you're into that. Um, and um, yeah, I'm really excited for the project. So redirect your money away from the Taker State and uh, into the this uh, documentary project. I'll include yes, the links exactly. to all of these things in the show notes. Thank you so much for stopping by. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it. Okay. See you, Baskar. I'm really looking forward to that documentary. Socialism deserves one. I'm also really looking forward to closing out our spring fundraising drive with a bang. We are making fast as all hell progress to reach our goal of 1,000 supporters on patreon.com slash the dig. My goal was to finish up by the end of June. With your help, I think we can reach our goal in the next two weeks. Y'all are truly amazing. And so please, help ensure the long-term financial viability of The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. We will thank you with our eternal gratitude. And we have gifts, including my new weekly newsletter for donations of $5 a month, Jacobin's The ABCs of Socialism for $10, and loads of other great left-wing books for those who donate $20 or more. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thank you, and here is part two of my interview with Stephanie DeGoyer and Astra Taylor. Stephanie DeGoyer is a professor of English at Willamette University and a 2018-19 fellow in the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. She is completing a book about naturalization as a legal and literary form. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker and writer. Her new documentary about democracy, which features Cornel West, Sylvia Federici, Angela Davis, and Wendy Brown, amongst others, will be released in the fall. And her new book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, will be published in January 
by Metropolitan Books. Astra, in, in your afterword, and you've touched on this a little already, you, you discuss how it is that, that neoliberalism undermines the rights even of citizens, and those citizens being the people who in Arendt's formulation are the, the clear possessors of rights in contrast to the, to the non-citizens who don't have the right to have rights. And to me, and uh, this is from reading your book, your book, not not Arendt, it seems to run contrary to to, to her argument, including uh, because she, who was not of of the left and was leery of of what she termed social rights, does Arendt set up sort of a, a, a too simplistic dichotomy between citizen possessors uh, of rights and those who are excluded from the sphere? Arendt is extremely brilliant and interesting, but that doesn't mean she's right all the time, right? Um, <laughs> sometimes she's wrong, but she's she's wrong in a really interesting way. I mean, that, I think that's part of the sort of thrill of reading her is that, you know, she's not someone that you just nod along with every, um, you know, every page. She's not telling you what you already know. She's she's interesting to think against. And, and so I think the backdrop to this is that she had a very specific definition of what what the political was, right? What was legitimately political, and I think this is more in her book on revolution. But you know, she she was a staunch critic of the French Revolution because she thought it wasn't it wasn't truly political. It had to do with necessity. It was about poverty and basic needs. So she um, it was the realm of necessity and not the realm of freedom, and and therefore um, you know was not this this uh, this domain of public heroic action that she romanticized. Uh, Stephanie, feel free to to weigh in and clarify if, if you think that that I'm off the mark here. Um, so I think yeah. So she made this distinction right between the political and, and the social, and she and she denigrated the social. So that made her a critic of welfare state policies um, and. Uh, but but not not a totally not a totally simplistic critic. I think there are sort of some I, I highlight some things that she says in my afterward that that uh, complicate the narrative. Um, you know, but but the point is that I think at this moment we absolutely have to pay attention to the economic and the social. And and my argument is that you you ultimately don't you cannot. Um, enact those political and civic rights that are so essential if you are economically disadvantaged, if you're operating in a society where some people, you know, are unfathomably wealthy and can accumulate all of the political power that, you know, that that wealth can buy, right? We're we're operating in a world where, you know, the, a handful of billionaires hold as much wealth as half of the human beings on the planet. Like, you know, there's no political equality when there's that kind of economic inequality. And neoliberalism, you know, is part of that story. I mean, if you look at neoliberalism as a sort of economic system that sort of captures the state and, and insulates the market, while also taking governance to this transnational level, right? Um, then it poses a real problem for for 
even those who have the rights of citizenship. And so, I, you know, in the in the chapter, I mentioned the um, investor state dispute settlements, right? So sort of these these courts where investors can sue states and citizens have nothing. They have, this is completely behind closed doors. Like citizens have no knowledge of this, right? So citizens can make decisions like maybe to invest in, uh, you know, solar energy or something. And then a foreign corporation can come on and say, Hey, you're, you know, you're hurting our profits. We're going to sue you for billions of dollars and taxpayers are on the hook. And Um, prior to Trump, TransCanada, had yes. filed a suit under NAFTA's Chapter 11 over the Keystone XL pipeline, if I yeah. have it right. and I think that was for $15 billion, right? So it's like citizens are organizing themselves and saying, you know, we want a different you know, energy model. We want this pipeline to um, be shut down. And then there are these you know, transnational structures available for the corporations to, to sort of punish the demos for for engaging in that democratic deliberation. Um, so I think these are the circumstances that we're thinking and writing in today. And so, you know, we don't have to just say, well, Arendt wouldn't have agreed. <laughs> she had this vision of what politics should be. I mean, we, we have to, this isn't, yeah, this isn't theology. This, <laughs> this isn't, isn't theology. Uh, like and biblical she, hermeneutics. Yeah. And she would have despised that. I mean, because she was for thinking and she was for people thinking together. Um, so I think she might've, you know, she might've, been vociferous in her disagreement and extremely eloquent, but I think she, I, I think she'd prefer to have someone um, challenge her, right, than to have someone try to sort of, right, up, apply her thinking with a kind of religious fervor or faith. Um, but I think you know we do have to. This, the world has changed, right? So there are these international structures that, you know, are aimed at protecting people's human rights, you know. Um, there are um, nation states embedded in a sort of international economic system that is more tightly interwoven and financialized than what she was writing. And so we have to to look at the way um, so, you know, and so so what's happened. Right. So now ostensibly everyone has, you know, human rights. Everyone has we, we have, you know, some people are still stateless, but, you know, those of us who are fortunate to not be, you know, we have the rights of citizenship. And I guess I'm interested in the way that those um, those rights are being eroded by new, uh, by new, um, are being eroded in, in new ways, right? Like, it's not like we're just going to win these rights and then everything's great. The system is going to adapt and figure out ways to, um, to you know, disempower people. I don't know. So I think there's something I think uh, and that's why I was attracted to the fact that she's writing so much about imperialism. And actually, if I remember correctly, in her preface, which is written in the, you know, later when she's she's done with the book, she actually says, wow, imperialism is is, um, you know, is rearing its head again. Right. This sort of relentless pursuit of profit and power. And so I, I was interested in how, you know, she's sort of sets the stage for her investigation into totalitarianism and and uh, rightlessness by looking at um at looking at the sort of process of sort of, of plunder and and power 
power grabbing and, and sort of trying to see how that that's still something that's in effect today, but under different circumstances. I mean, she says that over and over, right? You can you can try to understand the past, but you don't know the future. So we have to take take what she's take take the tools she's offered us and adapt them to this moment. Yeah, like using Arendt to read against Arendt. And it, it, it seems like her this distinction she has between political and social rights fails for me on on two counts. One, there's just the something that even I think a lot of liberal political philosophers agree with, which is that you can't have true political freedom if like basic material needs aren't met. And that's like I, I think something that liberal political philosophers like Rawls talk about all the mm-hmm. time. But I guess she would she would part with him on that. Um, but two, I think more more complexly and you get into this a lot, Astra, is the the ways in which the the assaults of of neoliberalism on on citizens have have done so much to help facilitate the the rise of the nativist far right in the U.S. and in Europe. So it's the very very thinness of the wages of citizenship that that facilitates this intensification of the nativist demand to further wall off citizenship to sort of inflate its value artificially mm-hmm. to wall it off to outsiders. And and that combined with with what you were also just discussing this increasing cosmopolitanism for capital, alongside these harsher borders for for people, so there can be no neat separation between between these two sets of rights. Yeah, and I think that's why you know that's why I, my mind did go to the the question of corporate rights, right? Because we're thinking about how human rights are this sort of internationalization of the rights of human beings, <laughs> and and if you look at the development of things like the WTO uh, as the internationalization of the rights of corporations, right? So we have these sort of dueling, um, these dueling frameworks. Um, But I think Arendt gives us tools to think about this in really interesting ways. I mean, one thing I took from it was her distinction between the ethnos and the demos, between the nation and the state. And I, I, um, I think that that... That is uh, sort of part of it is that you know people have less people have less um, uh, you know we right studies have shown this right that the United States is basically an oligarchy that the 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 preferences of citizens have very little impact on policy right and as as people become um, uh, you know, they they have this feeling that decisions are made by people who aren't accountable to them, that they're not representative, rep, that they're not represented, and they they feel that rightly because that's what's actually happening. They sort of take solace in in the nation, in patriotism, right, in the ethnos of this this connection. And there's a kind of strange compensation that happens that it and yeah, collapsing it, the demos into the ethnos. Yeah, right, and and as though it's you know. It's it's like this illusion that masks the fact that you know actually your citizenship you're not really part of a political community that has any power and makes decisions so you're just part of this you know this community uh, instead you're part of this like patriotic fantasy that's based on ethnicity or blood or being a real American or whatever. I I just yeah I mean I have a lot of thoughts but I'll make one one point that I think is worth making in our conversation is that Arendt doesn't just sort of say, okay, 
once you have citizenship, you have it all. And as if citizenship itself is stable. Um, I think one thing that she knew too well in her own time is that citizenship can be taken away and uh, you can lose it. And so, uh, and actually it's this nativist impulse after the first world war, I mean, second world war, that we begin to see just this happening. So I, I think it's not necessarily just that citizens themselves are disempowered by global capital. We are, and I've been watching some very worrying cases. We do have to worry about what starts to happen when we uh, denaturalize uh, naturalized citizens, uh, as I was watching one Supreme Court or following one, or more worrisome, start to deprive natural-born citizens of citizenship, right? And this was happening for Iran, and it's happened in, in U.S. history. And so I, I think— You're talking about the case of this Iraqi, I believe, who they claimed had—or maybe, I forget the case, but it was someone Serbian. who— Serbian. Serbian, who was, who was claimed on, on making some sort of misstatement on her application, right? To have lied um, and not represented the—that uh, her, her husband was in the army. But, but you know, it, the case— uh, was shot down. But what's important about it is this is what Arendt wanted us to focus on in her time, which is that um, you know, her citizenship is more fundamental than civil rights because it's the first place or the, the kind of bedrock we have for all else. And what gets to become worrisome, especially in, in a nativist uh, moment, is that we could potentially begin to lose it, right? It's, it's citizenship isn't stable. And, and that just, I think that's really hard to think about. Um, but I, I, that, so I would just put that in there. I, I don't think that she sees it as sort of um, a safe space. One thing that, that highlights how, how unsafe and unstable citizenship is, and that it's not, is, is to look at the ways that it's not a sort of thing that you have or don't have, but that there's a gradation between citizenship and alien. And I think a, a, a case that highlights that so clearly and, and horrifically in the U.S. is is mass incarceration and the very direct and pretty comprehensive stripping of rights that the act, that actual imprisonment occasions. But then after people are released, this long term second-class status and reduction in citizenship rights, whether in terms of of, of economic and, and political mar- or political marginalization that, that follows even uh, as people leave prison. Yeah, I think that's such a, a, a good point. And, it, you know, she, in the text, she does make pretty clear that she's talking when she talks about the right to have rights. Like she's, she's talking about some absolute cases. I think Stephanie's absolutely right to raise the fact that, you know, their citizenship can be taken away. I mean, there are there are stateless people right now trapped in airports and other transit zones living in a kind of limbo that's like totally fucking unimaginable. Um, but there are also, I, to me, I, you know, I wanted to highlight, you know, some of the contemporary challenges, which is the ways in which, okay, even when you, you have this right of citizenship, um, you know, it, it's not worth as much as it could be. And I think the example of mass incarceration and felony disenfranchisement is really important. I mean, and look at the way the system has adapted to, you know, a post um, civil rights 
context, right? So everybody has the right to cast a ballot. And so what, what has happened is there have been ways to, you know, um, to make sure that some people's votes are worth, are, you know, count for less than others. So yes, you have this access to this first tier of voting, but then your actual vote is weighted in such a way that it really, it doesn't amount to as much as, um, as someone else's. Then this happens through gerrymandering or, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's just actually structured into the constitution, right. In the sense that, you know, depending on what state you live in, your, your vote for Senate can count for, you know, 60 times less than somebody else's. And I, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this question of how, um, uneven, uneven, you know, these rights are even for people who supposedly possess them. Yeah. Which, which brings up not only gerrymandering, but the issue of corporate power that we've already discussed, not only, this this long history of of enshrining corporations with sort of special rights, but also in 2015 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in McDonald v. United States that base that that like most forms of what Americans would consider I, ordinary people would consider bribery are are legal because uh, someone donating to a politician in exchange for for special access is, is, is how things are supposed to work in according, according to the Supreme court. Yeah, it's just free speech. I mean, I think there's a really interesting case to go beyond the United States, you know, where, uh, in Saudi Arabia, I don't know if you read that the first robot, a woman robot, her name, I'm pretty sure her name was either Sophie or Sophia. I forget was just granted citizenship rights, you know, this in a, in a, a country that is a monarchy and where there are, millions of migrant laborers who, you know, have no comparable privileges <laughs> to this machine. Um, so, I mean, which, which points to an incredibly <laughs> strange, bizarre, dystopian future, right? Where, um, you know, and it, 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 this female, this supposedly female or female gendered robot, um, who I think spoke at South by Southwest and said that she wanted to destroy the human race. And then her programmers were like, no, no, it's a mistake. <laughs> um, you know, she got citizenship rights. She was very honored. Uh, you know, it's at the same year, human, human beings, female human beings were granted the right to drive. So, I mean, we live in a very uneven world and some really strange things could happen. Um, and I guess this is where I'm kind of, you know, my utopian weirdness kicks in where I'm like, okay, so if something that weird and bad could happen, what could be hap what could happen that's weird and good, right? What kind of new rights can we invent? What kind of collective rights? Um, you know, what examples can we point to that are that are hopeful? I mean, you know, I I, I know I'm in a in a minority here when I'm I'm like, you know, yeah, what about non-human rights? What about the countries, you know, Ecuador, New Zealand that are granting rights to nature or the or the townships in the United States who have done who have tried to do that? You know, of course they've been shut down um because, you know, the municipal level is <laughs> does not set set the terms in the United States. But you know, what what could we do with this concept of rights um that might redeem it a bit? I don't know if redeeming is where I I would go um, in, in just from the simple fact that I don't 
I feel like I've just been with this whole project engaged in a project of thinking through uh, what's happening. And I think the hardest part for me is to answer the question, so what are the solutions um, that we can propose? I mean, if we, if we can't have rights, what do we have? And, and, and Astra, you, you fronted some ideas. I mean, baseline, I think we would need to take the assertion of a right to have rights or a right to asylum or, or the right to be a refugee or, or, or what have you, just as seriously as we take the sovereign rights of existing polities. And I mean, that's how do we do that? How does the claim from somebody else become just as meaningful as our own claims I, I, that I'm not, uh, I, I don't know if I have a super answer for that. I mean, I think we do need a more realistic coordinated approach to migration to be for starters. Um, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to increase the caps. Um, they're historically low right now. Um, president Trump is allowing for 45,000, refugee claims, which is about 10% of the immigration flow. And this is compared to 1980, where we had um, something like 200,000 refugees. So, I mean, those are practical answers I have. Um, I have some philosophical thoughts, maybe, that aren't as interesting. The idea no, I, I think the philosophical <laughs> questions are, are, are important. That's why we're yeah. all here today. I, I mean, uh, we talked about Lita and 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 myself landing on this idea that there 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 can be no no oh I'm not going to say there's there can be no knowns that will get me off track but um, what I would say is that we have to be surprised by uh, claims to membership and Alistair Hunt says this in the book that we're not anticipating and so there's. We can claim rights. Um, it's a chance that they'll be heard um, from somebody and recognized. At the same time, um, we, if we are the receiving on the receiving end of the rights claim, we have to be willing to be surprised by it um, and to to receive it um, in the same way that we receive sort of um, you know Second Amendment rights claims or sovereign rights claims. How to, how to create that? You know, on one hand, like I said, it's a pragmatic problem, but it's it's a deep, it's a deeper problem. For me, what you're saying really echoes Aziz Rana's argument about that the left's political project must be one of of radical democratization, meaning on the one hand, deepening people's power over government and over the economy, but Beyond that, to pushing for an expanded people, an expanded demos, to maximally broaden the definition of who belongs to a political community, and that these two things, the deepening of people's power and the expansion of the notion of who the people are, have to are inextricably tied to one another. I mean, the expanded demos, uh, absolutely right. Um, how do we expand it? I mean, that... That's kind of the question I was sort of trying to think through. There's pragmatic ways, raise the caps, let more people in, um, protect the undocumented uh, people among us by, by opening up pathways to citizenship. 
I mean, so I, I completely agree with uh, Rana's formulation. I mean, and I think for me, expanding the demos, right? It it is something. The demos is the right the sovereign people, the people making decisions. So how do you actually create spaces for people to do that in a world where you know power is being you know systematically taken away from them, right? Where where politics are, you know, kind of a, a charade if we think about electoral politics and um, where people don't have the opportunity to, um, you know, engage in collective self-government in their, in their jobs where, you know, a lot of unions even are not living up to their potential as sort of laboratories of democracy where people don't really have democracy in their school. Um, you know, so I think, uh, you know, creating creating those spaces is really important, and 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 not, um, and that's why it's not just, you know, it's not just a question of, you know, creating a more inclusive, reinvigorated patriotism or whatever or nationalism. You know, it it really is about expanding uh, the the places where people can actually, you know, be in a political community to use a kind of Arendtian framework and 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 do things together and be powerful. Um, and, you know, to me, the word that comes to mind is, you know, it's solidarity, right? It's, it's creating spaces where people can actually experience that. Um, and I, you know, I think it really is, it's an, it's an urgent challenge, but it doesn't, there are so few places where people get to, you know, for all of our talk about democracy, there's just so few places in our society where people get to actually do it in any meaningful way. Um, you know, and we need to like, to create those opportunities. I mean, Astra, we've been sort of uh, discussing Arendt's sort of brief flirtation with um, council system, which people have ridiculed her for um, because they're so small. And But she sort of floats them in an epilogue as the only real alternative to um, a kind of democracy that's based on party systems and things like that. Um, but we always, whenever we talk about these things, you run into the issue of scale. Well, how do you, how do you scale those smaller models up? Um, how do you create any certainty for them, et cetera? This whole notion that we have to be careful about how so often bestowing rights and including some groups is so often premised on denying rights to others and and excluding those others and how deification of, of, of American rights and freedoms is so often premised on denigrating, you know, those people who seem unworthy of, of those freedoms. Yeah. I just wanted to, to add that, that Lita Maxwell was also, also touching on, on yeah, this point. But I mean, I think it's a really tricky, I think it's a tricky point, right? Because you do kind of know how you have to know who the people are. So I just finished this, documentary about democracy that's um i'm going back into the edit suite to sort of fiddle with it but it kind of ends on this dilemma right you you have to know who the we are who are making decisions and we've historically premised um the boundaries on pretty horrible things right excluding people based based on race, based on, you know, their economic status, based on their gender, et cetera. Um, and so the question is, you know, how can you create communities that have some kind of boundaries and coherence that that aren't 
you know, um, that, you know, insidious and awful, you know, so I think this is just a paradox that we have to think through and, and work with, um, and, and, uh, you know, and create communities where people are part of something and working in common and seeing, you know, seeing their struggles in relationship to others. I mean, for me, this becomes abstract, which is why, you know, it becomes almost too abstract, which is like, for me, it's something that I try to do through my organizing, my political organizing, trying to create, you know, debtors unions and getting people who might never imagine themselves as being in a community together because they are from different backgrounds, right? Some of them are from rural contexts and some people are live in cities and some people are young and some people are old and some people are black and white and gay and straight, but they're all indebted. They all have student debt and they can come together and create a community around this and have solidarity and create a new identity. That's not based on cruelly excluding anybody else. So for me, this is, I think this is another reason why I like Arendt, right? She ultimately says, you know, you have to do politics. It's not just theory. And you have to learn from the act of doing. And, you know, you have to experiment with new forms of solidarity and see what you can learn from it. So for me, you know, my answer to these abstract questions is, is really in, in my organizing and in trying to find new ways of building community. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The DIG has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you. And back to the show. One last subject before we get to uh, a point in the end point in the interview that we've sort of been teeing up periodically uh, for the last little while it's just that i want to highlight that it seems like another important piece of this idea of of expanding and deepening the the demos not only has to do with allowing and welcoming stateless people into the american political community or into the fill in the blank political community community but also thinking more um internationally and through that i think that this idea can help us make more sense of of imperialism, which you touched on earlier, Astra, and the rights of non-Americans to have a say over a militaristic foreign policy that not only so directly affects them, but that also is in so many ways, along with, with, with sort of the political economic order of empire more broadly beyond the military, is at the very root of the current refugee crisis. 
Um, and you asked her, you quote a, a really interesting line from Arendt here. She writes, what imperialists actually wanted was expansion of political power without the foundation of a body politic. And I think that's exactly right. And I think you could say precisely the same thing about nativists, though maybe not so much in their expressed aims, but in terms of the functional outcome of nativism, which is a diverse country in terms of people who live here, but that excludes, you know, the undesired others from from citizenship and members of the political community. Yeah, I really I liked that line when I found it. And, I, you know, the thing is, that that's what elites always want, right? They want the expansion of power without the foundation of some pesky political you know, community that, that will want, um, a say and want to be recognized. And, um, and so I, you know, what I wanted to do in the afterward was again, to sort of adapt that insight and and think about how it applies to the world that we find ourselves in. And I think the, the, you know, the body politic, (laughs) The demos is being, you know, sort of undermined on two fronts. One, you have the sort of, you know, neoliberal elite, economic elites, you know, who who want to sort of, um, you know, capture the state and use it to, you know, enhance their sort of their profit seeking um, and don't want uh, to be impeded by any sort of, you know, regular or democratic accountability. Um, but I, th- I think you're right in connecting it to nativists too. Again, it, it gets to this idea that what the people, you know, they get something that's just a set of a compensation, again, a citizenship that's not really worth as much. You know, what you get, um, you get, you know, to see yourself as a, you know, an American, but you're not going to get healthcare or social security. Um, and vicariously live out the greatness of the American project as, you know, through through empire, which concretely doesn't deliver that much to people and is delivering less and less, I think, which is thus Trump. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and these two dynamics really, you know, feed on each other. And, um, you know, when things are like it can get worse. Right. I mean, this is uh, why you know, right-wingers are like attacking something like birthright citizenship, right? It's to reinforce this idea that, you know, the demos isn't even about just being born in a territory or in a country. It's, it's literally about blood and having, you know, American parentage. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a dangerous time because these two powerful dynamics, uh, sorry, these two powerful dynamics really, you know, amplify each other. (laughs) I would just add, yeah, and also to, I mean, that quote about the imperialists wanting an expansion of power without the foundation of the body politic. But of course, it's the very foundation of the body politic that they use to purchase this power, if you will, um, and then expand their own imperial interests, right? I mean, that's that's the what we've been talking about, these nativists who vote thinking or act thinking for the nation, but it's often in the service of somebody who's going to uh, exploit that power for their own financial gains. So, I, yeah, that's what I would add. As I, as I said mm-hmm. on a recent show, in the end, nationalism always serves the interests of whoever rules the nation. And as mm-hmm. 
we've mentioned already a few times the show, we live in an oligarchy. So. Yeah. Well, it almost makes you, you know, nostalgic for empire. At least empires, you know, conquered people and then gave them some rights and included them, right? So now we engage in these imperial practices and then destabilize regions and refuse to, you know, accept the human beings whose lives are totally disrupted. And yeah. Ale- Alexander, where are you? <laughs> we need yeah. To- <laughs> and I mean, I think this is why it, we also have to be careful looking to the past, you know, the times when the United States has been more generous or supposedly generous about opening up its doors to refugees, right? Because they were all sort of geopolitical, you know, <laughs> There are always these sort of geopolitical machinations. So yes, people, you know, um, you know, Reagan took in people from the Contras, and you know, there were Vietnamese, but not from El Salvador, 000, and not from El Salvador, right? Vietnamese, you know, boat people came, you know, eight hundred thousand of them, I think, or something like that. But these were, these were sort of, um, you know, kind of Cold War era calculations, right? And this idea. So we we've always yes. been distinguishing between who's worthy and who's unworthy. You know what refugees will make us look good, um, you know, and and I think right now we're, we've again it's a different calculation. So, you know, is the eleven Syrian uh, Syrians have made their way to the United States this year, and we can see that as you know incredible cruelty with it, which it is. But I also think it's a it's as I said a calculation to inflate the value of you know of of citizenship, right? To to there there are always these these other factors and and um you know ideological sort of uh principles being promoted in these games that are being played with real people's lives. It's shitty. For for listeners who are interested in this issue of the the Cold War political instrumentality of of things like refugee policy, I highly recommend the book Calling the Masses, The Democratic Origins of Racist Immigration Policy in the America by David Scott Fitzgerald and David Cook Martin. Just a side note. Um, something that we've been teeing up for a while and subtweeting for uh, much of the interview off and on is that there's another book that might be flying off the shelves now that people realize that origins of totalitarianism does not answer in a really simplistic way why is Donald Trump president. And that book is a book I just reviewed with my partner, political scientist Theoria Frankos, and it's called The People vs. Democracy. It's by a self-styled expert in the threat of populism named Yasha Munk. It's a book that argues that it's the people uh, who are who are the problem, mostly. And uh, Astra, you're mentioned by name. Have you read it? I have read it, but that's not why I dislike the book. <laughs> I mean, it, I so I think the thing about the, this book is it's emblematic of a whole kind of a sort of thought trend, mind virus that's spreading, um, which is really, I don't, I guess I would almost describe it as a, a liberal version of make America great again. Right. Um, that things were going pretty well until the 2016 election, uh, when, you know, the people lost their mind, the demons lost their mind and elected Donald Trump. I mean, do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think that Munch and, and his ilk do acknowledge some shortcomings on the part of 
elites, but their basic solutions are all geared towards how elites can reestablish control and basically trick the the people into believing that the that the elite liberalism yeah. is acting in their interest. Yeah, I mean, the sort of undercurrent of these books is that things are really complicated and the people just can't grasp that. People can't grasp how complicated modern political life is. He basically just says that, actually. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so we need, you know, we kind of need, um, and and that, you know, experts should be respected. Um, and sure, yes, they've made some mistakes along the way, but overall, um, you know, overall, this is the way it has to be, right? Sort of stay in your lane, people. <laughs> um, and and the framework that that he uses, right, is that there's a sort of a, time, a struggle from time immemorial between liberalism, which he characterizes as sort of rights and the rule of law, and then democracy, popular sovereignty. Though liberalism and, minus any mention of property rights, which is a key facet of liberalism insofar as I've been familiar with the con- the idea. <laughs> yeah. And I think, so I, I feel like this framework, which, it, you know, I, if I remember, he kind of passes off as his own, but it's actually, you know, sort of standard paradigm in this, in this, um, school of thought, you know, which he's just like the latest example of. So it's this framework of, you know, there's, the problem is that, you know, there's, um, the rise of, what is it like, democracy without rights and mm-hmm. then um rights rights without democracy and so the rights without democracy are you know what the liberals represented right um the sort of technocrats it's technocrats independent institutions courts uh independent agencies right and the the sort of i felt again the sort of thrust of the book is that well we should we should respect those liberals who are protecting our rights, even if they've done so at the expense of democracy. And I guess I, you know, part of me is just like, you know, can't like, first we just need to deconstruct that entire idea that, you know, you can have rights without democracy, that you can have rights without the demos doing them, right. That there's something that can just sort of be like purely instruments, like purely institutionalized and just be there without any kind of, you know, collective activity or political community. I mean, that seems to me, I'd be very curious to know what Stephanie thinks, but that seems to me to be kind of a form of anti-politics, like thinking about Arendt as someone who really believes in, you know, political action being doing things together. This idea that you can totally separate the rule of law and rights from the people just seems to me to be like fundamentally a fallacy. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of a democracy without thinking and acting is, it's unthinkable. Um, it's unthinkable for a rent in, in that, in that sense. Um, I haven't read the book, although I, I will now that we are having this conversation, but I have been, I mean, maybe this is too much of a general shift, but I have been quite taken by how much the last two years have been focused on are we totalitarian yet you know a kind of uh how authoritarian is this check in with the rent check in with others um and i i i find it so hard because so much of the refu- the global refugee crisis happens before trump's election i mean the crisis certainly is acute in 2015 but it's it's a longer um there's a much longer backstory to it 
And I, I and do the deportation wor- crisis. Yes, and, and, the, I, and, and border I, militarization and empire imperial absolutely. warfare. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I do worry about a kind of moment where we, I mean, I don't want to say hysterical, but um, to quote Sam Moyne, but I, I do worry that we are headed towards thinking um, in such starkly dramatic terms in order to, I don't know, trumpet our own solutions. Um, but again, I haven't read this book, so. Yeah, but I think what you're getting at yeah. is is really it's it's on point. And and Dan, you know, it's I mean, the what the the fact of eleven Syrian refugees does is it just makes Obama look good by comparison. But it's such an incredibly low bar, right? It makes sort of the liberal status quo um, that that Trumpism throws into relief. I mean, yes, comparably, it. it it looks, it's better, but it's, it's by no means good. And, you know, this idea that, um, that it was, that the, I don't know, this idea that, um, liberalism was defending people's rights in a sort of robust fashion before things went awry. Um, it's just kind of insulting. I mean, the other thing that the related to that is, the solution that Monk proposes, which is something that we've touched on, which is this idea of, you know, reclaiming nationalism and, and creating a kind of this myth of a more inclusive patriotism. And I think it, it's really, it's quite telling to me that his solution is to reclaim the nation and not the state, right? To go back to the division we've been talking about, um, the ethnos or the demos, the nation or the state, right? Because it's, you know, the nation is an imagined community. It's not the actual infrastructure that provides for people, um, that provides for their basic needs or provides an opportunity to make decisions and to govern their own lives. And to me, you know, what we need is is to reclaim the state for the people, uh, you know, and that's, you know, a sort of, um, you know, democratic socialism or whatever you want to call it. But it's it's the state as a democratic institution that's missing. We've got enough of the nation. <laughs> I I think that that what Arendt might teach us that that Monk can't understand is that it's the very civilization that he so treasures that has created the barbarisms, the savagery of, of Trump, of the AFD, of Le Pen, and of Orban. That's I think a central foundational failing of his argument and those of others like him that Arendt's thinking can help us diagnose. Dan, I think that's exactly the right conclusion that we should draw from Arendt. And I, and I think that's how I conclude my chapter too, is that we need to be wary of neat narratives at this time. And those work both ways, whether we want to sort of uh, take the 2016 election and create a neat narrative uh, about authoritarianism out, out of it, or or one about the Arab Spring, for example, and its revolutionary potentials. Arendt, if we can take anything for us to resist neat narrativizations and to really pay attention uh, to our own moment and its history. And and I mean, that that's kind of how I end things with a, a call to um, thinking in that way. So I'm, 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 I'm weary. I, I, I want to be careful with 
singular quick narratives, hot takes in book form, maybe. So I, I like that. I like that you take from her a, a, an emphasis on thinking, but I, I feel like there's an, you know, also an equal emphasis on action. And, you know, that's precisely what the kind of liberal retrenchment wants to guard against. Like, I think that, you know, there's a sort of wider trend of equating right and left populism as though anyone who condemns elites is the same, <laughs> right? Um, which is not true, you know? Um, this, it's a totally false, it's a false equivalency. And, and I feel like, you know, Arendt makes the point very vividly that, um, that, you know, a, a small cadre of elites pursuing, relentlessly pursuing their own interests and, and, you know, puts the entire citizenry at risk, right? There, that's the sort of catalyst for these terrible events that she is documenting, you know, and it, and, and it's happening today and, and we need to, uh, you know, figure out ways to stop them. And that requires doing things and taking the leap into the uncertainty of political action and, and, you know, naming our enemies, um, even if people are going to tarnish us as idiot populace. Well, I think that's a good point to end on and a good point. So Stephanie DeGoyer and Astra Taylor, thank you both very much. Thanks. Thank that's you, fun. Dan. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me to be part of the book, Stephanie. That was the second and final part of my interview with Stephanie DeGoyer, a professor of English at Willamette University, and Astra Taylor, a filmmaker and writer. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting the inherent barbarism of bourgeois civilization, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. All the music is by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. We greatly appreciate all propaganda on our behalf. And last, but by no means least, please support this podcast with a donation at patreon.com slash the dig. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. Thank you.